Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Are you ready for the message? I'm going to dive right in because it may be a longer one, but I don't think it will be, but it probably will be. It might be. I don't know. Okay, here we go. Um, Also, because it is in the book of Job, it is a message on suffering, um, on how to suffer, how to deal with suffering, why do we suffer. Time of message is, why God, why? You ever asked that question before, why God, why? There's this man in Florida, uh, true story, was in the newspaper. Uh, He just had one of those days. One of those days, he was working on his uh, motorcycle in his backyard, and he was revving it up, and it wasn't in neutral. It was actually in drive, and he shot it through his patio door, exploded the door, gas everywhere. He was, like, um, connected to it, so it dragged him in. He was bloody everywhere. Wife calls the ambulance, and uh, ambulance comes, picks him up, uh, takes him to, uh, to the hospital. And while he's gone, she's cleaning up the house, wiping up all the gasoline, uh, takes the, you know, the paper towels of gasoline, puts them in the toilet, um, and then he comes back from the hospital, and he's had a hard day, so he decides he's got to go use the bathroom, so he sits on the toilet and lights a cigarette to smoke, and he's smoking the cigarette, and as he's finished the cigarette, he goes to flick it in the toilet, and it explodes and blows his clothes off him. He's alive, by the way. Blows his clothes off of him, and then the same paramedics came and got him and brought him back to the hospital. Okay, one of those moments, why God, why? Now, that is a crazy story to me, but I, it made me realize that all of us are going through something, but not the same thing. And when I was a young kid, I had why God, why God moments. I mean, even when you're little, you have those why God, why moments. I remember when I was like eight years old and I had this crush on my girl in this neighborhood and, and I wanted to impress her. So I remember grabbing the handlebars of the bicycle and I was going to pull it up to make a wheelie and be like, yo, what's up girl? I can do wheelies. And, and so when I pulled the handlebars up though, the handlebars came out of the bicycle, separated. Like I got set up or something and the bike shot out from under me and I fell down and I slid on the ground and I was crying and I was bloody and the girl's like, are you okay? And I was like, oh, I did not impress her. And I remember like walking this broken bike home going, why God, why? And then I got a little older and I had more why God, why moments in high school and junior high. And then I got to become a early 20 year old person. And those why God, why moments got a lot more serious than just a bicycle falling down in front of a girl. You have a friend group, and you have a friend that's 19 years old, and she's a girl you even maybe dated, uh, went on a few dates with, and was a friend of yours, somebody who God used massively in your life. She goes and rides, uh, uh, rides with her uncle on a motorcycle and gets hit by a car and dies. And those are the moments where you really go, why God, why? And then you get older, and you go through some health conditions, and you start to question God's goodness in your life because you're experiencing things that you never think you should experience, The book of Job is 42 chapters, and the thing that stood out to me more than anything else in this book is that it had 330 questions in it, more than any other book, because suffering will make you ask questions. It'll make you ask, I thought I was a good person, God. Why would this happen to me? And my prayer today is that as we go through this book of Job, and as we try to enter into this question of why are we suffering why are people we know suffering or they went through things that God would do some surgery on your heart today? That God would set you free today a little bit, that you would find peace today, and that some of you, you'd give God another shot. Some of you are angry at God right now. Some of you are frustrated with God right now. 
And I'm praying at the end of this that you would have your eyes opened to the goodness of God and that if it's not good yet, it's just because he's not done yet. Will you bow your heads? I'm going to pray. God, we love you. Oh, we love you, Jesus. God, I pray right now as we go into the message and we read your scripture, God, I pray that we would be people that would be ready to hear truth. And God, truth is one of those things that sometimes is so nice to hear and sometimes it feels like a scalpel doing surgery. God, I pray that we would trust you that when you are doing surgery, you only do surgery to heal us, never to hurt us. And so God, we ask that you would do what only you can do. Oh, may my words fall to the floor and your words soar. And everybody said, I shared that silly story of the man in Florida because he had a really bad day, a terrible day. But there was a man named Job uh, that had an even worse day. And if you know Job 1, it's this fascinating story where uh, Satan is talking to the Lord. He's basically accusing God that nobody really loves you, God. Nobody's really for you. The only reason why even Job loves you is because you give him stuff. And it's this accusation. The, the love that people have for you, it's contractual. It is conditional. I bet you, God, if Job went through anything bad, that he would curse your name because he only loves you because he gets things. And if you know the book of Job, Job loses everything. And in the story of Job in Job 1, it's in the poetic books. So, so be careful when you read the poetic books. Because the poetic books, you, you go, what part is literal and what part is metaphorical? What part are you just trying to show me your heart, God? And what part is actually literal? And so Job 1, I'm not going to try to get into what part is literal and what part isn't. But I do see the truth of God showing that he tells uh, Satan, hey, this is as far as you can go in this world. That he is sovereign. That he does not choose suffering for Job, but he allows suffering. But what God shows in Job 1 that I think is so beautiful is that he says this thing. He believes the best in Job. He believes that if Job goes through a storm, that he will still love him. Isn't it a fascinating picture? Picture this real quick. In Job 1, Satan comes and accuses us, and God believes the best in us. But in Genesis 3, Satan comes to Adam and Eve, you and I, and accuses God, and we believe the worst in him. What an amazing correlation. Maybe, just maybe, we should learn from God and become more like God and believe the best in our God the way he believes the best in us. And so as Job goes through this terrible day, he loses everything. We know that it's the oldest book, if not tied for the oldest book in Genesis, because the way it's written is it's this patriarchal book where Job's wealth is counted by animals and goods, and he does sacrifices still. So, so this book, even though it's later on in the book, the book is put together, not chronologically, it's put together uh, in different sections of major minor prophets. So the book of Job is probably the first book ever written. The name Job literally means man who suffers. Job is a real person in the Bible. You'll find him in Ezekiel. You'll find him in the book of James. We're not sure if Job was his real name or it was the nickname the person gave him because literally, how are you birth name? And you know what this name? Man who suffers. Job, you're welcome. Um, so we're not sure. So Job loses everything. And here is the advice he gets. Basically, the enemy takes everything from him. Everything. And the only thing that's left is his wife. Do you think that's kind of funny? Just a little bit. Saying, I'm going to leave her. She is. She's a battle axe. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to touch that one. And here's what his wife says to Job in Job 2. Job scraped his skin with pieces of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. So Job has boils now. He's not only lost things, but he's lost his health. 
And his wife says this to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Now here is Job's response in Job 1 and how he's going to live. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshiped and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this Job did not sin by uh, charging God with wrongdoing. Job decides to worship God. You're going to have two options in this thing called suffering. Either curse God and die or worship God and live. Now, now let me just unpack this real quick. The, the Bible shows that God is an author and he is sovereign. Psalm 139 talks about him being an author. And the reality is in life is that we have chapters and we have pages. And some of you, the reason why you suffered is you've added pages you should never added. Sometimes our suffering is just from bad decisions, just from poor decisions. Sometimes our suffering is just through the general fall of man. That once sin entered the world, sin affects innocent people, and you've suffered because of parents' bad decisions, people you've hung out with bad decisions, just the reality that our lives are feeble, we are not um, on this side of heaven yet, so you suffered a lot of things. And so when you look at this decision in your life, it really is this, is uh, I love um, movies, and I'm not a big book reader. Who's, who's the book reader in the house? You guys are special. <laughs> I do it because I have to do it. You know, uh, readers are leaders, you know, learners are leaders. So I'm always trying to, you know, learn, but I just don't like reading. So people are like, I'm going to get a book and just read. I'm like, what? I'm going to get a TV remote and I'm going to watch sports. Okay. And so, uh, come on now. Um, and so even when I'm watching a movie and there's these moments in the movie and it's halfway in the movie. And this is just how movies are always written. It's like the worst part of the movie. You guys know what I'm talking about? Are you reading your book? It's the worst part of the book. Can you imagine reading the book halfway through and something bad happening and shutting it and just slamming it down going, that book sucks. Going to your friends, I don't recommend this book. It's terrible. And they're like, have you read it yet? Uh, yeah, I read it. It's amazing. It's one of the greatest books ever written. No, it's not. I read it. And guess what? They're like, That's like page 100. You haven't got to 250 yet. 250 is really, really good. And the reality is, is how sad would it be if you were reading one of the greatest books that had one of the greatest redemption stories and one of the greatest finishes, but you shut it too early because you didn't like what happened in the middle. And what is happening in Job is this is the middle of his life. This is a part of his life, and he is getting advice, shut the book, it's over. And Job is saying, I'm going to turn the page, I'm going to worship, I'm going to believe that suffering is not my destination, that suffering is not a sentence. Uh, if he wants to take me now, he can take me, but I'm going to praise my God the way he brought me into this world. And here's how the story ends. I love the end of books. I'm going to get to Job 42. It's so good. And this is what Job says because he's, he's confused about uh, what was happening. Because if I'm being honest, I think we can all agree that we're okay with people suffering who are evil. We watch movies and you delight in it, let's be honest. When the bad guy gets you, you're like, yes, yes. You know, it's just the way we're built. It makes no sense when somebody who is good and kind suffers. And Job is the best of the best, the most integrous and the best. This is what he even says in the book of Job. That's what the Lord says. He's the best. And he suffered. And so Job was asking these questions, 330, and a lot of them was like, give me an explanation. I thought I was a good man. Give me some vindication. Let him know that you didn't punish me because I'm good, because I'm bad. Just give me some vindication, God. And here's what Job says at the end, because one of the greatest gifts you'll have if you don't shut the book is not all the wealth that Job gets back, not the redemption of family. He gets to know who God is. And I love this, this thing it says. He says, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. 
You asked who is that questions my wisdom and such ignorance. It is I, and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I'll speak, and I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I'd only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. People who suffer start to see God a little differently. And he's saying, I heard about you, God. I knew you were the God who redeemed. I knew you were the God that could, you know, fix things that can never be fixed. But I heard about those things, but now I've seen it with my own eyes. If you let God lead your story and you don't shut the book of suffering, you will start to see God in a way that will give you a swagger to live life that you never thought you could live. And he goes on to say this, uh, I take back everything I said. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. He goes on to say the Lord corrects all of his friends. He, then he talks to his friends. I, I, I was gonna, there's, there's so much I could teach in, in the book of Job. It's 40 chapters. Job's friends are miserable comforters. They're the worst. They're like, you're probably suffering because you did this. You're probably suffering, just, you know, fix this. They're suffering because they're, they're the worst, the worst, miserable comforters. Mission Church, the Bible shows that suffering is going to hit everybody in this room at one time in their life. The church should be shock absorbers for when we hit those bumps in life. We shouldn't be pointers. We should just be there to help and just carry. And it's, it's like a car that doesn't have a good shock system. You'll bounce right out of the seat. You'll break your back if it doesn't have a good shock system. But a car that has a good shock system, you get, in journey, you get through journeys you never thought you could go. And there's going to be some off-roading in our life. And, and Job's friends were terrible at off-roading. They were blaming things and blaming him and making a moralist argument. And so God said, hey, you, you blew it. You spoke not accurate of me. He says, here's the deal. I want Job to pray for you, so I'll forgive you. Like, I mean, just totally turn the tables. And here's how it ends. I love it. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers and sisters and former friends came and feasted with him at his home, and they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord brought against him. And each of them brought him a gift of money and gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job in the second of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more kids and more daughters. He named his first daughter Jeremiah in the land that no women uh, were as lovely as the daughters of Job. And the father put them into his will along with all their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died an old man who had lived a long, full life. Everybody say full. Full, full life. Not a superficial life, a full life. So 330 questions. I thought the only way I could preach this message is if we just asked a lot of questions today. And I'm going to do my best to give you some answers. And I'm going to let you know that you're not going to get all the answers you want today. But I'm hoping you get Jesus today. And so the first question I think we should ask is, why is suffering so hard? Why is it just so hard? And I think one of the reasons why it's so hard is we have what I call an expectation problem. We are an Instagram generation. We are the American church. So an Instagram generation is over-inspired but uninformed. We hear all these verses about all these good things God's going to do for us, but we never ever hear a verse about suffering. Do you know there's like 150 verses in the Bible about suffering? Can I read you some? Okay, I will. Here we go. Uh, 2 Timothy 3. Yes, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Let me, let me, let me do the math here. Yes, all, all. Another translation says everyone. Everybody say everyone. Okay, let's keep going. Okay. Uh, let's look at somebody who lived an amazing life for the Lord, gave his whole life to the kingdom. This is Paul's suffering resume. It says this in 2 Corinthians 11. You've never seen this on Instagram posted. 
Are the servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I served him far more. I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Why 39? Because they believed 40 lashes would kill a person. So 39 was the maximum amount you could give somebody to suffer him. So five times I was lashed 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in cities, in deserts, and on seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and often gone without food. I've shriveled in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have this burden in my concern for you. Soap on that today, okay? Go home and reflect on that verse. Now, I think one of the reasons why we struggle so much with, with suffering is that the American church really has um, been uh, permeated and almost saturated by American culture. We, we, can't, we, we can't lie to ourselves and say it's not. And so we take the American dream of chasing happiness and we bring it to the church and think we should chase happiness and not chase holiness. And so, so our expectation uh, when we get saved, from, God, uh, saved from, from this world and say yes to God is that he's just going to help me get to happiness faster. He's going to make joy sweeter. Uh, and now Elizabeth Elliot, uh, um, a famous author, her husband, of course, a famous um, uh, missionary, she wrote this book uh, called No Graven Image. And it was this book about this young 25-year-old girl. And this young 25-year-old girl, uh, this story, she's a missionary. She goes to this um, Indian tribe. Um, and goes into this tribe and basically wants to translate the Bible for them and lead them to the Lord. And she has this amazing success in this, in this story. And so she's, she's um, teaching them about Jesus. She's literally writing a whole Bible in a new translation. And towards the end of the book, um, she um, is helping this um, chief of this tribe who's having this little reaction and gives him some penicillin to save him. But in the midst of her giving him the penicillin, it's too much of a dose for him because he's never had it, and he ends up dying. And the way the story ends is that the tribe now thinks she's evil, and they almost kill her, and they cast her out and take all of her work, all of her translation, and they burn it and send her on her way, and the book ends right there. And the Christian community, when this book came out, flipped out. Christian universities wouldn't even carry it and let you read it. They said, this is not theological. This is not how God works. God would not allow a story to be like this. He would not allow somebody to be this good and then suffer the ending like this. And Elizabeth Elliot's response to them was, that girl is me. I am 42 years old and I've lost two husbands already. Two husbands that love the Lord with all their heart, all their soul and all their mind that would give anything for the kingdom. And I've lost both the things that I hold dearest. And she says, you don't think that's theological? Then you better throw out the book of Job because I feel like I'm the modern day Job. I have never experienced what Elizabeth Elliot has experienced, and a lot, uh, I've never experienced what a lot of you have experienced. So forgive me that when I share my mini storm with you, do not think that I'm saying it's massive and bigger than yours. But when I went through my own things in life, I remember thinking, why is this happening to me? This does not match my expectations. When I went through my EOE journey with my esophagus and I woke up one morning, my esophagus was on fire and I went to the doctor and he says, we got to take a biopsy. It might be cancer. Um, you start going down this path. You're like, God, I'm a pastor. I love you. I preach for a living and, and it hurts to speak. Like I've done good for you. Like wh what's happening in my life? And then you go to the doctor and uh, you, you get, find out it's just, you know, some 
EOE thing where basically allergies affect my esophagus and how I speak, and then also food affects it, and I have to manage it for the rest of my life. And um, I haven't had a day for the last two years, basically, where I don't feel discomfort in my throat and when I talk. And I'm believing that God is going to heal me from it, and we're trying to do food with it and all that kind of thing. Um, but there was this three-month journey where I was so depressed. I was a terrible husband, terrible friend. My boy Drew was like, where did you go, man? You disappeared on me. You don't even call anymore. I just, I just literally shut down, and I was so mad at God. I was so upset, and I was like, I just don't get this. And I, so I did this huge study on suffering, and, and basically just more like, why do people get sick? And I was studying you know, all these things on sin, like, do I have a secret sin? Am I unforgiving? Because the Bible shows you, you can have sickness or suffering from being unforgiving, and, and you know, you know, like, you know, sin makes our bones sick. And I was like, is it a sin? And, and the more and more I went on this journey, the reality is, is that most suffering is just general. You know, there's a man who's blind, like, oh, God, is it because his dad, you know, um, was a sinner? And he's like, no, 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 none of this was his doing. This is actually for God's glory. And, and so I went on this journey, and, and what suffering did for me, and what suffering is going to do for a lot of you, is it freed me from Christian moralism. A lot of us are Christian moralists. And our Christian moralism has shaped our brain and basically says, if I do good, I'll get good. And if I have no sin in my life, and I pray the most prayers, and I'm a missionary, uh, and I'm the best of this, then there's no way that suffering will touch my life. The book of Job explodes that theology in two seconds. The book of Job shows that suffering can land on anybody and everybody, and that if you expect it not to touch you, it will explode your theology, and either going to run from God or blame yourself, and you're going to go on a terrible journey for months. Can I just tell you real quick, if suffering is happening, I'm going to let you know. I'm, I'm kind of going to skip to the end real quick. I've learned this in life. I've not always learned why we always suffer, but I've learned not to squander my suffering. God will use your suffering. God will end your suffering. It is not a life sentence, but it's just a part of the fallen world. So it's going to free you from Christian moralism. So that's the first thing. I think our expectations need to be calibrated. Uh, next thing is this. Uh, we have a knowledge problem. We have a knowledge problem. Now, you'll see this in Job 38. Let me just read it to you real quick. So, the Lord reveals his omnipotence to Job, his, his omniscience, all, his, his omnius, if I could put it that way. So the, they're questioning God, what's going on? And, and here's what the Lord says. Then the Lord answered Job and the world and said, Who is this who darkens counsel, who's dar uh, darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this that darkens my counsel? Who is this that, that actually doesn't show who I am because you don't have knowledge and using words without knowledge? He goes on, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where uh, were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched out line upon it to what its foundations fastened, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars uh, sang together, <coughs> and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors? When it burst forth and issued uh, its womb, when I made the clouds its garments and thick darkness its swallowing band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far for, uh, you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked to be shaken out of it? He goes on and he just keeps on just showing him just his, his, his godliness. I... Um, I need you to know something. Job did not have the Pentateuch. He had none of the Bible. We have the whole Bible, so we know a little bit more than Job did. And so I think I got, I got to do a couple, a couple things before I get into this point of our knowledge problem. Is Job didn't understand God's redemption plan. He didn't have it in the book of Genesis yet. Um, at least we don't think he did, uh, most theologians. 
And so I, I need you to, I need to unpack real quick just a theological understanding of how you read the word and how you're going to process suffering. First one we have to understand is we have to understand creation. God created the heavens and the earth, man, women. He created everything. He created it perfect. It was perfect. There was no suffering. There were no storms. There were no hurricanes. It was beautiful. The garden even was perfect. Then mankind chose to rebel against God, and there, what we call this, we call this the fall. The fall created pain. It created suffering. Uh, God did not create it. It was us walking away from God. So these are the things that happened to the ground, thorns and thistles. It literally represents pain and sin. And so then we had the fall. But God's promise right when the fall happened is he promised to redeem us and restore us completely. And so he says, now suffering is on this earth. And I will not allow man's fall to be the final part of this story. I will redeem them and then I will fully restore them. And so um, Job has no idea that there is going to be a redemption named Jesus. And his name, literally, fully man, fully God, Jesus would come to this earth and redeem everything that was broken. Now, he's redeemed us, but we are not in heaven yet, and we have not been fully restored. This is where the kingdom of God, now now but not yet, theological thing, can make your brain explode. So when Jesus came, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. A.K. we can contend now for full redemption, full restoration, full health. We can believe for those things, hope for those things, because they are at hand, and God can do them right now on this earth. But this world is still broken. That's why it's at hand. It's now, but not yet. And then there will come this time where there is full restoration. We see this in Revelation 20 and 21. There will be no more tears, no more cries. Everybody gets new bodies. I can't wait to get a new body. I think I tore my meniscus in my knee. I'm going to get an MRI on Tuesday. I've turned 40. I was playing hoops. And clack. Okay, anyways. Um, so my, my, my body's falling apart a little bit. Um, even when I was going through my EUE, this kind of made Rachel really make me feel like I was weird. But I remember I was having a really, just a chronic pain day. with Every breath, it was painful. And I told Rachel, I was like, man, I used to be afraid of death. I'm ready to go home anytime now. And she's like, oh, that's disgusting. And to be honest, I, I, I just, I didn't, I wasn't saying to be morbid. I was like, Lord, I get it. Like this side of heaven sucks because, compared to that side of heaven. The, and so, and so we're going to have restoration one day. And so he's, what he's trying to say to Job is, Job, you don't have what the knowledge I have. You don't see what I see. And, and, and this is, this, I, I got to read you this verse real quick. This is, this is one of those verses that I, I think it will make sense if I read it to you. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. You're like, God, you promised me redemption. You promised me wholeness. These are your promises. Why am I not experiencing them? He says this. He goes, he's not slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as expectantly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away from this terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found and, uh, to deserve judgment. What, what that verse is saying is, all these promises of wholeness and no more pain and no more suffering, they're coming. But God is actually holding back the final restoration moment because he wants more people to get saved so they can come to eternity. And so a lot of us are like, well, I just want to be whole. God's like, I, I, it's, if you could see what I see. If you could understand what I, if you could, if you could just trust that I know best and how to handle all of this, that, that my plan is perfect. Now, uh, let me, let me put it this way. When we try to enter into why things are happening, it's like a five-year-old walking up to a space shuttle engineer and telling them that they don't believe the space shuttle can fly. Can you imagine a five-year-old walking up to an astrophysicist and all the, all the engineers and being like, uh, guys, I don't think that, that looks too heavy. Uh, it's not going to work. 
Do you think an astrophysicist and engineers are going to sit the five-year-old down and be like, well, actually, uh, the uh, Bermuda law of flight, uh, da, da, da. They're not, they're not going to explain. They're going to sit down and just watch the rocket take off. They're not going to explain everything to the five-year-old. And the reality is, is that we ask God, God, I just, I just feel like, you know, this should happen here. And God's like, stop. Just watch eternity take flight. Just watch what I do here, okay? So many of us want God to give us answers when he's like, just allow me to do miracles and allow me to be God and to save the whole earth and take care of all my promises. I take care of my promises better than anybody else could take care of the promises. I I love this verse in Isaiah uh, 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What he is saying is that your thoughts and his thoughts There is a chasm between them as far as the universe is one side to the other. That's as incomprehensible as you can get. I remember reading this book called, I think, Circle Maker by Mark Batterson. He unpacks this this verse so beautifully. and He kind of gives you some context, and I've I've never forgot it. And basically, he talks about uh, the sun uh, is our next-door neighbor. It's 93 million miles away. The sun uh, light that touches your face is eight minutes old. Everybody snap real quick. When we snapped... Six times light circumnavigated the earth. Just with one step. Now, if you drove 65 miles per hour, 365, 24-7, it would take you this long, I wish I could remember it, 163 years to get to the sun. That's our closest neighbor. That's not even like the universe, that's just the sun. Now, they're discovering galaxies over trillions and billions of galaxies, but they think the farthest galaxy that they can, you know, at least uh, know where it's at in a sense of their guesstimation, it's 15 trillion light years away. So again, six times around the world. 16 trillion light years away. So on your best day, here's my thought. When you think you understand who God is, you're still 15 trillion miles off. When you still think, well, God, I know what you're doing. You're still 15 trillion miles off. There's a a knowledge problem. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His ways are higher than your ways. And so when you're trying to figure out what God is doing, you're doing the wrong thing in suffering. You're trying to become God instead of allowing him just to be God. And so my, my prayer for you today is that you would release some things today and then you would embrace some things today. You release some expectations today. You release your God complex today. I call it the control plex. And what I mean by that is, um, uh, this is a little interesting story about a dad who was in a supermarket. And this dad, as he's in the supermarket, he's got one of those kids who is just the worst. You know, he's got some kids, but this one, he's the bad one. And so every time he takes them out, the kid just loses his, you know, everything, okay? Just loses it. And so they're in the supermarket, and this little kid starts losing it, screaming, ah! And, you know, the, the dad looks at him. He's like, okay, stop, stop, stop. Ah! And so the, the, the father kneels down. He just kneels down. He goes, Albert, it's going to be okay. Albert, calm your soul. Albert, Albert, this too shall pass. Albert, breathe. And this lady who sees him kneeling down says, wow, I've never seen a father so gentle with their son. Your son, Albert, is a lucky, lucky kid. And the guy looked at the lady and says, ma'am, I'm Albert. That's Billy. Okay? Let's catch this. I'm talking to myself right now, lady. Now, 
I'm like, I didn't think it would get that big of a laugh. Jeez. Jeez. But the reality is, is that as you go through suffering, instead of trying to control the uncontrollable and screaming at whatever the storm is in front of you, as a parent, it may be a kid, it may be a sickness, it may be some thing, some storm, whatever it is, uh, some betrayal, whatever storm it is, instead of screaming at the storm, maybe next time you should kneel down and say, God, I trust you. Tyler, it's going to be okay. God has his best. Tyler, this too shall pass. Tyler, breathe. Tyler, God loves you. His promises are yes and amen. Tyler, it's going to be okay. Stop screaming at the things that are destroying you and start speaking the promises of God to yourself. Okay? So, so we, have a, we have a knowledge problem. So we're going to have to fix that. Next thing why suffering so hard is we have a perspective problem. We have a perspective problem. I, um, uh, I love the poetic books, Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. Uh, there, there are these beautiful books and there's something that you'll see in the poetic books. There's a lot of wisdom conversation. And one of the things uh, that you'll see in the wisdom uh, books is every, every single uh, poetic book has a verse about the foundation of wisdom is fear of the Lord. The, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. True wisdom is fear of the Lord. You'll see this in Job 28, 8. It says this, and this is what he says to all humanity. The fear of the Lord is true wisdom. To forsake all evil is real understanding. And then throughout the poetic books, it talks about don't be a fool. Like, the, the poetic books are trying to make you not a foolish person and have you not make foolish decisions. You know, one of the uh, most powerful uh, um, chapters in all the poetic books is probably Proverbs 6 through 8, and it's talking to the man, and it's telling the man, do not be a foolish man. Don't go sleep with that woman, that adulterous woman. Don't go just sleep around, young man or married man, because here's what's going to happen. You're going to make a temporal decision, young man, and if you make a foolish decision, it will cost you your life. It will cost you your name. And so over and over again, Proverbs and Psalms and Job is trying to take you from a temporal mindset because fools think about the temporal and wise people think about the eternal. And so uh, the perspective that the Bible is always trying to open our eyes to is stop thinking about what will temporally satisfy you and look at what actually will eternally actually satisfy your soul. And so you'll see this throughout scripture and you'll even see it in um, uh, John 14. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to go die. I'm going to be betrayed by one of you. You're all going to be scattered, and a bunch of you are also going to die. And all of them are like this, what? They're freaked out, and this is Jesus' advice to them, his words to them. He says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. If you go to the doctor, and you're sick, and the doctor says, don't be sick, that's not a great doctor. I'm troubled. Don't be troubled. Thanks, doc. I remember this, this verse drove me nuts for the longest time. Just don't be troubled. Okay, fine. I won't be troubled. And I love that the, the, the Lord is so kind. He's so kind. He gives a medicine to this thing. He doesn't say don't be troubled uh, and your hearts be troubled. He says, trust in God and trust also in me. Here he goes. There is more than enough rooms in my father's home. If there were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way where I'm going. Stop. In the 1800s, the average life expectancy of a human being the late 1800s even, was 30s. 30s. That's when you would, that was like, hey, you lived a good life. 37, job well done. If you were 40, it was like, get all the candles out. They are, they're setting records. And not only that, the average life expectancy in the late 1800s was not only in 30s, but death was everywhere. It was so prevalent. 
You, you didn't go to hospitals uh, to have your uh, spouses die. You, usually they would be in your home and you'd care from home and you'd watch them die and you'd bury them. Plagues would come and go and you'd see them. But the observation of what death was in the 1800s and the observation of eternity was completely different than what we have today. Tim Keller preached this amazing message about three years ago and it just never left me. He basically talked about why we're so afraid of death. And he says why we're so afraid of death is because we forgot about eternity. And the people in the 1800s did not forget about eternity because they, life was so harsh on them that they couldn't wait for eternity. They, they, they was, there was never ever, it's like the baby eagle that, you know, like has like the, um, uh, all the feathers in the, in, in the nest and then the mommy eagle takes the feathers out and the baby eagle finally has to move out of the nest because it's all prickly. Well, the people in the 1800s, they never had any feathers in their nest, basically. They were never like, oh, I like it. It's cozy here. But now we live in 2022 and the average life expectancy is late 70s. We don't see death the way they saw death back then, but our era is more afraid of death than any other generation ever to live because we have put all of our stock in right now. We've put all of our stock into this time on earth. And the reason why I brought this rope up is I remember seeing this illustration when I was like 25 years old. And basically the illustration uh, the pastor shared was this little black piece of tape represents your life on earth. And the rest of the rope represents eternity perfection, perfect body, everything, no sickness, laughter. If you're a golfer, you're shooting scratch scores all day long. Come on now. You know, you know. If, you, if you're a foodie, the food is the best food ever. Come on, read the Old Testament. Uh, we have a mountain that Lydia flows with wine. Shout out to that. You know what I'm saying? Um, I mean, it is perfection. Just, and guess what? We get to just do it for eternity. We don't die and just go to church. We die and enjoy life with our Savior, okay? It just keeps going and going and going. And what's crazy to me is that we've put all of our eggs in this little basket and we allow this to affect everything in our emotions. And so we don't think eternally. And Jesus is like, hey, this is going to happen here. You're going to be betrayed. I'm going to be betrayed. You're going to be scattered. I'm going to go die. And all of them are freaking out. He's like, don't be worried. I got a huge mansion in heaven for you. I got all kinds of things. Don't, this, is, this is so temporal. Live, live eternal on this side and just see what happens in your life. And so if I could just pray for some of you today, will you start thinking about eternity a little bit more? I, I, I was debating on sharing this story. It's, it's, it's not a good one. I don't like it, but I just, I couldn't get away from it. I remember it was like year five of Rachel and I's marriage. And I had this dream where we got in a car wreck and Rachel died. And I am losing it in my dream. I mean, I am just, even though I think about the dream, it's my least favorite dream I ever had. I, I hated it. And I was bawling. I, wake, I woke up crying. I've never had a dream like that. And I remember seeing Rachel, and I just I, I hugged her, and I told her about the dream, and, and she ate it all up. I was like, oh, you missed me. How'd you be that sad, huh? <laughs> and I'm hugging her. And... It's one of those dreams where you remember the day before and the day after so vividly. And I'd like to tell you, the day before I went to sleep, Rachel and I had the best day, and we didn't have a fight. But I remember that day, like, we were kind of off. We had a fight. I was kind of frustrated. I, 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 I remember, like, it was a conversation about some vacation we were going to do. And I woke up from that dream, and I've never had, like, a sweeter moment of going, oh, my baby girl, I get to see you. And the reality is, is we, we sometimes forget about how sweet it's going to be to get to heaven and hug people that we haven't seen for a while to see faces. I can't wait to hug my grandma. She said, well, let me, Lord. 
I can't wait to hug friends I've lost. I debated on saying this. People in the house, you had miscarriages. You're going to hug your kids one day. I've had family members who've lost kids. You're going to hug your kids again one day. It is going to be the greatest and sweetest thing you'll ever experience. And if you could look forward to those days and not allow suffering to steal everything from your life, you may pray differently and live and love differently today. I want to finish with I thought, I'm literally one-third into my message. I Forgive me. I didn't even get to talk about, does God care when we suffer? The answer is yes. Um, <laughs> I have, I'm sorry. Um, next point. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, is God indifferent to our suffering? The cross is the answer. He's not indifferent. He's the opposite of indifferent to our suffering. He literally sent his only son. So he would die that he would stop death. He would stop all suffering. He entered into the furnace of suffering so we could walk out of the furnace of suffering. So he's not indifferent to it. Does he care about, what does God feel like when he suffers? Luke 7, 11 through 16, I was going to read it to you. It's a story of a mom who lost her kid and Jesus, it says he's moved to compassion. The Greek word is literally that's, what it, that's how it's pronounced. Forgive me. It literally is like, okay. So it's the weirdest Greek word I've ever heard. But literally it means to be moved to your bowels, like heaping and crying where you feel pain in your stomach. That's what Jesus felt for the mom. He walks up in this story and touches the kid in the, in, in the, um, in the casket, which was against the rules. It was crossing the line, but love crosses lines and they're all the right ways. And so Jesus literally heals this kid and raises him back to life. And it's just this picture of when we're going through life and we're hurting, God literally is not just looking at you. He is actually weeping with you. He has moved to his bowels with you and he is going to cross every line to redeem what you have lost. And that's why he came to the cross. This is why he cares. Come on now. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and I'll finish with this. So what do we do with all this suffering? I think that the reality is, is that we're terrible with pain, but if we were really honest with ourselves, I think we could actually um, come to this realization that we're okay with pain if pain has a purpose. All the people who work out, any CrossFitters in the house? Any psychos? <laughs> Zero. Good. I don't want you to invite me to CrossFit. I tried it one time. I was like, I'm leaving, okay? I'm an Orange Theory fan. I'm down with that. But none of that CrossFit stuff. These people will go through pain. Paying for that reward at the end. All the, all, the, all the moms, raise your hand. Give me a wave. How was the first three months of pregnancy? Some sickness there, right? A little morning sickness. I've never been pregnant. <laughs> the next three. And the next three. That was nine months. It was the sweetest time, but you went through some things. And how about birth? Was there some pain involved in birth? But was it worth it? Yes. And if you allow suffering to birth things in your life, God can redeem some things even on this side of heaven. There's three things I just wrote down that what suffering does in our life. Suffering, suffering helps us rely on him. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9 says this, this is what suffering does. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die, but as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves. I was suffering, we were crushed, and here is the result. I stopped relying on myself and learn to rely on God who raises the dead. I would be lying to you if I don't have days where I'm raising my fist against God because of my throat right now. I'd be lying to you that in service sometimes, I'll be in the last song of worship and saying, God, I'm the only person that's speaking today and my throat hurts. I'm popping Hall's cough drops like they're candy. God, why is this happening to me? But I'll tell you this, I've never relied on God more in my life. 
every Sunday morning, I'm just, I was in my office and I was saying, God, I need you. I need you to carry me through today again. God, I think we're going to go to three services. Oh, I need you, Jesus. I, I pray that it wouldn't even distract me. I pray I wouldn't even think about it when I'm preaching. Lord, would you, God, I need you to sustain my throat for just three messages and then I'll, I'll rest again. But God, would you sustain me? It's taught me how to rely on him. Your suffering, well, it may look like a bad thing, but you'll never be closer to God in your suffering. It's amazing how close you are to God when you, when you suffer. Next thing, suffering will make you a person of substance. It'll make you a person of substance. James 1, 2, 3, 4 says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you're, you face trials of many kinds, because you may know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If you've lived any years, you can spot a superficial Christian in two seconds. And we don't need superficial Christianity anymore. The reality is, is when I'm around people and I hear the way they pray for me, the way they counsel me, I go, this person is a person of substance. I hear about what they've been through and that they're still standing and they're still worshiping, that they have that uh, Job kind of spirit that I'm going to worship in the stormy days. Uh, I love this um, um, statement from Celebration Discipline. It's a book. The, the world is in desperate need today, not of a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people, a people of substance. People need us to not be these people that go left and right, but on stormy days, we are deep Christians that have been through it, but still trust our God for good things. So suffering makes us people of substance. Another thing suffering does, suffering makes us a better minister of the gospel. It helps you, it makes you better at, your, your weakness and your wounds and your suffering, it's like an adhesive to somebody else who's been through it. It's just like sticks you right to them. If you've been through something terrible and they've been like, bam, like, like you, you get their ear right away. I want to read you this verse in 2 Corinthians. All praise to God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is merciful, the Father, source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others when they are troubled. We'll be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. The very thing that you suffered through actually now qualifies you to minister. And so I just got to give a little heads up to some people. If you're a person, you're not a parent, don't give parent advice. It's like the word, like, you know what I would do? No, you, you never suffered through a kid like this. Just give them a hug. Give them a babysitting night and a free gift to dinner. But if you are a parent that was parenting for 40 years and you had to suffer through it, man, comfort that parent. Hey, grace will fill the gaps. This season will pass. You're doing the best you can. Don't question yourself. God is with you. And then last but not least, If I could leave you with any thought, I was like, Lord, what, what do you want me to leave people with today? It's a full message, a lot of content. What, like, what do you want me to tell them? Because like, the reason why I put this off for two weeks was I just didn't want to represent God incorrectly. Because the book of Job, so many people represent God incorrectly, and it really bothers them. And so I didn't want to be afraid of telling you about God, even things you didn't like to hear, that God still allows suffering. I was like, God, I just want to communicate you well. What, what, what can I show them about you? What do you want me to show them? I'll show you anything. And this is the verse he gave me, and I want you to finish with this. When you're going through suffering, I want you to remember this one thing. God loves me. More than anything, God loves me. And I want to read it to you. In Lamentations, in all the places, all the Bible, I want to read it to you. Peace has been stripped away, and I've forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for uh, from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this, 
the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercy never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him, so it is good to wait quietly. Whew. If it's not good yet, he's not done yet, because he loves, he says, God is good to those who wait. I've been to Disneyland too many times to count my life. I lived in LA, and I was the fool that would stand in line for three hours for the new ride, the new one, Star Wars. It's a two-hour, three-hour wait, but you stand in line for three hours for a three-minute experience. People do this all the time. They wait for little rides. What the Lord is saying is if you could just wait and have reverence, what is on the other side of this line of waiting is not some three-minute experience. It is the eternal inheritance of the kingdom. We're going to be great waiters because we're going to be great receivers. Will you bow your heads? I don't know if it's your first time or second time in church. I don't know if you never said yes to Jesus, never said yes to heaven, no to hell, yes to blessing, no to cursing. But if you want to say yes to Jesus today, with every head bowed and eye closed, the Bible is very clear that we have to have a response to the salvation call. And so if you want to say yes to Jesus today, with every head bowed and eye closed, I'm asking you to raise your hand and catch my eye on the count of three. Raise it up. I just want to pray for you. You want to say yes to salvation. You want to say yes to this Savior. On the count of three, raise your hand. One, two, three. Raise it up and raise it up. I see you. That's a great decision. I see you and I see you. Come on now. Hands all over. I see you. Come on. Church, we can clap for that. Come on. Come on. Come on. Will you stand up? We're going to pray. We always pray this prayer at the end of church. People got saved today. We're going to pray with you like family. Come on now. It's a very simple prayer, but it's the best prayer you could ever pray in your whole life. Jesus, come into my life today. I confess I'm a sinner. And today, you are my Savior. Become my Lord. Today, I say goodbye to my past and hello to my promises. And everybody said, come on. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.